So this morning I am in the eighth and final week of my sermon series through the New Testament letter, 1 Peter. And if you're unfamiliar with 1 Peter, it was a letter written by the Apostle Peter, one of the leaders in the early church. It was written to a group of Christians in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, Christians who are scattered about and facing all kinds of persecution and difficulties and suffering. And so he writes to all these Christians to encourage them. And we're going to be in uh, chapter 5, verse 1 Peter chapter 5, which is the final chapter in this letter this morning. And we're going to do next week uh, something we haven't done in a long time. Typically, when I go through a sermon series, at the end of it, uh, the week after I finish, we basically do a testimony time where I'll do a summary, a brief summary, and then we invite people to come up and share things that they learned, things that you know God did in their lives through that time. We haven't done that in a long time due to COVID and the whole not sharing microphone space, but we're going to do that again next week. So I'm going to encourage you just to reflect upon this sermon series, and if there's something that you feel led to share, then uh, next week will be the opportunity. So let me read First uh, Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greeting, as does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, open our ears and our hearts to hear, to receive this, to understand it, to apply it to our lives. Speak to us, we pray, through these words so we might be more like you and know you better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to just take... uh, Five minutes on the first section, which is addressed to the elders, and then I want to focus mainly on the middle section, which is addressed to everyone about resisting the devil. So I want to remind you once again, Peter is writing to a church, a number of churches who are undergoing all kinds of persecution and suffering, and so you can imagine that elders who were the spiritual leaders of the churches, you can imagine that they were on the front lines of a very difficult situation, and he writes to encourage them to care for The church to care for those who are under uh, their care. This is a book with a phrase that one of our elders, Dwayne, likes to say. They smell like sheep. That uh, elders, as shepherds, should smell like sheep because of their intimate, you know, 
uh, involvement with the people under their care. That he calls them to shepherd them. He gives this analogy of shepherd with sheep to care for those who are under their care. Because like a shepherd, if you're not looking after the sheep, then wild animals can come in to attack the sheep. As he gives in this passage about the lion, the devil. So in this passage, he points out three motives that elders should have when they step up to serve. He says this, they should serve not because they must, but because they're willing. Okay? That elders should serve not because they feel like they have to, but because they are willing to serve. Secondly, he says, not greedy for money. And the elders of our church laughed about that, about that one. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. That those who step up should, to serve shouldn't do it because they think they're going to be financially compensated for it, but because they're eager to serve. And thirdly, not lording it over those entrusted to them, but being examples to the flock. Not using it as a title or position from which to dominate and domineer others, but instead to serve them as Jesus came to serve. In other words, those who want to serve in spiritual leadership should do it not from self-centered, selfish motives, right? They should step up to serve because they're willing, because they want to serve. They want to give their lives in service to God and service to others, to care for them, to protect them. Jesus gave a great analogy in John chapter 10. He says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The thief, again, is referring to the devil. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So he says, I'm the good shepherd and those who serve under me in spiritual leadership have a choice. They can either be like me, a good shepherd who cares for and protects the sheep or they can be like the hired hand who at the first sign of danger runs away abandoning the sheep. Don't be a hired hand, in other words. And in Ezekiel 34, it gives a great prophecy back in the Old Testament of how God feels about the hired hands, how he feels about shepherds who are in it for themselves and not in it to care for the sheep. He said, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not care for the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the words of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and I will hold them accountable for my flock. Strong words to those who step up to serve in spiritual leadership. But Peter ends this section by encouraging them, saying this, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. It's a great word for those who do step up to serve in spiritual leadership and who are faithful not to be hired hands, but to be under shepherds, to love, to care, for protect uh, the sheep. It says, When that chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So I want to thank those who have served in this church as elders, those who are currently serving as elders. I'm thankful that they are not hired hands who run away at the first sign of danger. 
but they are willing to serve. They are willing to care for and protect the sheep. So moving on now, he goes on to say this to everyone. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, it's possible he's just giving a number of different instructions here in this passage that are unrelated. Sometimes the letters include parts like this, but I'm going to treat it as if it's connected. I'm going to treat it as if, as he talks about humility and pride, and then he talks about anxiety, that those are connected to this part about the devil and resisting the devil. Remember again, Peter's writing to Christians who are undergoing all kinds of suffering and persecution, and he wants them to be aware that there is an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour, who's going to use suffering and persecution to try to frighten the believers into abandoning God, abandoning the faith, and seeking safety and comfort instead. Jesus said something similar in John 10.10, which we just read. He said this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He says, wake up. There is an enemy. There is an enemy out there who wants to destroy you. That evil is more than just evil people or systemic evil. There is a spiritual evil. There is a spiritual realm that we're not going to fix this world simply by better education, better therapy. All of those things are important, but evil is deeper than that. It's deeper than just having good government. That there is a spiritual realm, there is spiritual evil, and it's going to take spiritual warfare in order to bring good, in order to correct what is evil. When it comes to the devil, I'm sure there's all kinds of opinions in this room and to those who are listening. And C.S. Lewis, I think, put it best in his introduction to the Screwtape Letters. He wrote this. He said, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. In other words, some people have an unhealthy fear or fascination when it comes to the enemy and spiritual evil, focusing way too much on it. And others think that it's foolishness, that anyone would believe in spirit, the spiritual realm or in spiritual evil. Either one, either approach, you know that Satan can use whether people are too fascinated and too afraid, or whether they think that he doesn't even exist. We are in a spiritual battle. And Paul in Ephesians said it this way, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So on the one hand, he's saying, yeah, there is a spiritual evil. There is a being who is evil. 
who is powerful, who needs to be resisted, who needs to be fought against. But on the other hand, he's limited. 1 John 4, 3 through 4 says, Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. It's a great line, isn't it? It says, the one who's in you, that God lives in you by his Holy Spirit, and he is greater than the one in the world. So even though there is spiritual evil that needs to be fought against, God is greater. You do not need an unhealthy fear or fascination of the devil. Because greater is he who is in you than he, than, than he that is in the world. So let's talk this morning. How does the devil oppose us? How do we stand against him? And I want to focus not on every single aspect, but one aspect in particular that I think comes up in this passage. And that is that through our sin, that the devil gains a foothold in our lives. The term foothold, think of Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. Paul writes, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. In this passage, he's saying, He's encouraging people to not go to bed with anger in their hearts, to deal with it, to try to bring reconciliation. Because he says, when you leave anger undealt with, you leave a foothold for the enemy. It's like leaving the door open a crack, right? You're leaving a door open a crack in your life, and the devil can get his foot in there because you've got anger that you're not dealing with. And there, it just causes bitterness and resentment. And all kinds of things happen when you don't deal with anger and you just let it fester. And so let me use this imagery of giving the devil a foothold to address the two things that come up in this passage, which are pride and anxiety. In this passage, he says there's two things in particular that can give a foothold to the enemy, and they are pride and anxiety. Starting with pride in 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6, he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So, just beginning with this, pride, I believe, is one of those ways in which we give a foothold to the devil, when we kind of keep pride in our lives. And I want to define that, what I mean when I talk about pride, how pride gives a foothold to the enemy, and then how you kind of cl close that door and keep the enemy out. At its core, if you had to define pride, I'd say pride is this. Pride is putting oneself in the place of God. You know, God is supposed to be on the throne. He's the king. He's the Lord of lords. Pride is saying, excuse me, God. Get off my throne. And taking his spot and saying, no, I'm, I'm the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. I am the one who deserves to be on the throne. It's making yourself an idol in three particular ways, I think, that we do that. The first is this that we, put, we refuse to acknowledge our dependence upon God. The first thing about pride, the first way we give a foothold is that we refuse to acknowledge our complete and utter dependence upon God. That every single breath that you breathe is a gift from God. Do you understand that? That every morning you wake up, every piece of food you put in your mouth, Every time you go to work, every ability you have, every single solitary thing 
is a gift from God and you are completely dependent upon him for every one of it. And pride is refusing to acknowledge that dependence, to think that you are self-sufficient, that you are your own thing, your own being, and you can do whatever it is you please without recognizing that it is only by God's grace that you have just taken the breath that you just breathed. It's living as a cosmic plagiarist. It's a great phrase that I heard once from Tim Keller. You know what a plagiarist is? What plagiarism is? Plagiarism is when you pass off uh, someone else's work as your own, right? When you refuse to give credit to someone who came up with the ideas and instead you say that it's yours. Pride is cosmic plagiarism. It's refusing to acknowledge that everything that you do, everything that you are, is a gift from God. Instead, taking credit for that which belongs to him. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul put it this way, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? Love that line. What do you have that you didn't receive from God? And if you received it from God, why are you boasting as if it's yours? As if it's due to your hard work, your abilities, as opposed to just giving credit where credit is due. Do you really think that if you had been born in Nepal in the 13th century that you still would have accomplished everything you've accomplished? Everything that you have is because God has placed you where you are, given you the gifts you have, the abilities you have. Even your ability and your willpower to overcome things you've been through in your life was given to you by God. You owe everything to him. And pride, first and foremost, is thinking that you are self-sufficient. You sit on his throne and you say, I got this. I did this myself. As opposed to recognizing that you are completely dependent upon him. So that's the first way that pride puts ourselves in God's place. We refuse to acknowledge that we're completely dependent upon God. Secondly, second way that pride shows itself is when we think that we get to determine what right and wrong is. Again, it's... All right, God, I know you created, get off the throne. It's my throne. I'm the God here. I'm the Lord here. I get to say what's right and what's wrong. I'm the judge. I get to decide who's right, who's wrong, how I live, how they live, all of that. That's pride. That you are your own God. That you have the right to decide what's right and wrong for yourself. That you can pass judgment on others because you know what's right and wrong for them. Now, this is precisely what our culture teaches. So even in saying this, this is flying in the face of what the, the, the messages that most of you receive every day, which is that, you know, you be you, you do you. You know, you decide what's right for you. You decide who you want to be. Don't listen to what others say. That is the message loud and clear that gets promoted day after day. It's saying there is no God. Move him off the throne. You're on the throne of your life. You decide who you are and what you want to be and how you want to live. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It's pride. It's all that is. It's declaring to God that you are no God. There is no God. Or if there is a God, he should be affirming and applauding me for however it is I choose to live, whatever it is I want to do. Isaiah, prophecy from God back in the Old Testament, says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. If that's you, you know, you may want to just 
take this time, this opportunity to reflect upon this, to consider what, if God is real, what you are doing in pushing him off the throne and saying, I'm going to choose for myself how I want to live, what I want to do, what is right, what is wrong. I mean, you would think with the way our cultural, culture emphasizes being true to yourself, following your own desires, doing it as whatever you want to do, you would think that like happiness and joy would be skyrocketing in our culture, right? Because everyone is being told more than ever to do whatever it is you want to do. So why is it that anxiety and depression is off the scales instead? Why is it that instead of everyone finding happiness and joy and peace in following their own path and instead, instead the rates of anxiety and depression and all of that are skyrocketing? I mean, could it be, could it be that instead of living according to how we've been designed, we are shoving God out of the way and saying, I want to do what I want to do, and that that's not how we were designed? The proud person decides what is right and wrong, and the proud person looks around the room and says, I can decide what is right and wrong for each of you, and I can pass judgment on how you're living. I can pass judgment on what you're doing, as opposed to saying, that's not my place. There's a God He's on the throne, and he is fully capable of deciding what is deserved by who and what is right and what is wrong and what judgment each person deserves. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. I really enjoyed reading this uh, quote today. The spiritually proud person shows it in his finding fault with other saints. The eminently humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. Isn't that great? He says, listen, the humble person knows that he's got or she's got so much going on in his or her own heart to deal with that they don't have time to look out and find fault with everybody else. The proud person sits on the throne and plays God, judging every other person. The humble person looks within and deals with their own heart. So, How does pride put ourselves in God's place? First and foremost, it's a refusal to acknowledge our dependence on God for everything. And secondly, it's this attitude that we decide what is right and wrong for ourselves and we can pass judgment on what is right and wrong for others. Thirdly, we want to be worshipped. We want to be worshipped. We want to be the ones receiving the honor and the glory the likes and the follows and the mentions and the comments and all of that. We want to be the ones that everyone applauds and affirms. We want to be the ones that everyone tells over and over how awesome we are. The proud man wants to receive glory and honor instead of giving glory and honor to God and seeking glory and honor from God. Jesus put it this way in John 5, How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God. I mean, again, you would think in this culture where all you need to do is post something on a social media page and you can have 100 people commenting how awesome you are and telling you how much they like you and follow you and all of that, wouldn't you think that as a result our culture would be so like full of just joy and happiness and and? Our self-image would be through the roof, right? Because every day people are telling us how awesome we are. So why is it, again, that it's the opposite? Why is it, again, that the more we chase that, 
the more depressed and anxious people become. Again, could it be that in searching our own glory and our own honor and our own worship, that it's not how God designed us to live? Then said God designed us to be worshipers, to worship him and honor him and glorify him and to receive from him the honor and glory that he shares with us. That's how we were designed to live. You know, our pride is so insidious that it can even take things like worship and prayer and even preaching, and it can turn it so that even that becomes an avenue for us to seek honor and glory, right? That I could be up here speaking in such a way that I'm seeking honor and glory. We can worship in such a way that all of a sudden we realize, wait, why am I thinking about how I sound, you know, and whether people might like the way I sound as opposed to just giving glory to God. I distinctly remember a time early in my, my you know, life as a Christian when I had formulated something I wanted to pray in a group prayer session, and then someone else prayed what I was going to pray, and I remember getting upset that they stole my prayer. And it was as if God like lifted the veil and showed me, like, this is your heart, that even at your most spiritual, you're so full of this desire to be honored and glorified and worshiped yourself. Get off the throne. So, I hope I've convinced you. And again, this is not meant for you to say like, oh, I hope he's listening, right? Because that's pride, right? <laughs> if anyone's listening to this, be like, I hope they're listening to this. No, you listen to this. This is your heart we're talking about here. This is how pride gives a foothold to the devil when we tell God to get off the throne. Because when we get on God's throne, what does it do? How does it give a foothold to the devil? Because we're telling God, you know, we don't, we don't need you, right? Unless you're going to serve us and, and, you know, unless you're going to just elevate us and, and applaud us, we don't need you. We open ourselves up to the enemy because we pushed God off out of his throne. We're operating without his protection. We become blind and needy people stumbling about in the darkness, shunning the light, looking for life and peace and joy in other people instead of looking to God. We go out into the world thinking that we're God, expecting others to bow down to us and serve us, agree with us, judging others, elevating ourselves. How much division does that lead to? How much destruction does that lead to when everyone goes out into the world just about themselves? The devil has a field day with that. So how do we combat this pride and shut down the devil's foothold? Humility, he says. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. How are you gonna shut that door so there's no longer a foothold there for the enemy? He says it comes through humility. And where does humility come from? First and foremost, where does humility come from? It's recognizing that I am so sinful that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save me, right? That I could not save myself. I could not make myself right with God. It was only the death of Jesus that could save me and make me right in his sight. But I am so loved, I'm so loved that Jesus willingly gave his life for me. On the one hand, I'm so wicked and sinful that it took the death of the Son of God to save me, but on the other hand, I'm so loved that he willingly did it for me. What does that do? 
If that's your mindset, if that's your attitude, what does that do? First of all, self-sufficiency goes out the window, right? Because how, I, I can't do it on my own. I can't make myself right before God on my own. I'm completely dependent upon God and his grace. And secondly, how can I look down on anyone else? I didn't save myself. God didn't accept me because I was great, awesome, you know? It's because of Jesus' death for me, his grace for me. So how can I go out into this world and pass judgment on anyone else? How can I go out in this world and elevate myself and look down on anyone else? That's where humility comes from. First and foremost, you look to the cross, you realize your sinfulness that required the death of the Son of God and the love that he has for you. You go out of the world recognizing you're completely self-dependent upon him. You're dependent upon him. You're not self-sufficient. He's on the throne. You're a sinner in need of a savior. And then you go out not to be served, but to serve. Remember what Paul wrote about Jesus in Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, the one who actually deserved all the worship in the world because he was in very nature God, he made himself nothing, humbled himself all the way to death on a cross to serve us, to love us. And now he says, go and do likewise. Go and serve. Go and humble yourself and serve others, laying down your life the way he laid down his life for you. That's the path to true honor and glory. It's not going to come through posting things all over that get people to praise you and congratulate you. It comes through laying down your life in humility to others, serving others. That's the one that God exalts and lifts up. Galatians 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Can I encourage you to lay down your pride this morning and get off God's throne? Let him be God. I'm going to do a little less on the anxiety section. But the second way that we can give foothold to the enemy is anxiety. It says, cast all your anxiety anxiety on him because he cares for you. Anxiety. Now, I'm, just, I'm not going to get into like medical stuff. I know there's all of that. But just spiritually speaking, let's talk about anxiety. Let's talk about from a spiritual, godly perspective, kind of what anxiety is all about. If we read this verse closely, he'd be saying, he seems to be saying that Anxiety, when we have anxiety, it's because we don't trust that God cares for us, that we don't trust his love for us, that a lot of our anxiety comes when we don't trust his care for us, we don't trust his love for us. He says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Maybe the root of a lot of our anxiety is a refusal to believe that God loves us, that he cares for us. 
if this is true, then you might even say that anxiety is really, really closely related to pride, believe it or not, even though you might not think of it at first. Because anxiety, you might say, is an overconfidence in our own opinion. It's an overconfidence in our own opinion of things, that we know how things should go in life. And we're afraid that God hasn't gotten the memo. We're afraid that God isn't going to follow through on what we know is the best way for things to go. And so we're anxious. We have a hard time trusting in him because we know how things should go for us, for our kids, for our lives, for our job, for our career, for all of that. We know how things should go. And we're not sure that God has gotten the memo and that he's going to do things the way they should go. And so we're anxious. We don't trust that he knows what's best for us. We're not, we can't cast our anxiety on him and leave it there because we're not sure that he cares for us. We're not sure that he loves us. We're not sure that he knows what's best for us. Think about how that kind of anxiety gives a foothold to the enemy, right? I mean, think about it. What are your greatest fears and anxieties as you sit here today? What are the things that make you most anxious? Is it a relationship? Afraid of how that relationship will go? Your kids, how they'll end up? Is it anxiety over finances and security? Is it anxiety and fears over rejection? Over failure? Over humiliation? What is it? What is it that brings you great anxiety this morning? And if you're honest with yourself, you know that those things kind of get elevated above God and you're more afraid of, of losing those things or of those things not going the way you want them to go or going through suffering in that way than you are about being faithful to God. That if the choice came, you'd be like, no, God, don't, let, don't take that. No, God, don't, don't let me go through that. And again, he's saying, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He is God. He's on the throne. He loves you. He cares for you. As long as you have anything in your life that's more important to, than, more important to you than faithfulness to God, guess what? There's a foothold there. There's a foothold for the enemy because he knows the buttons to push. He knows that all he's got to do is threaten, you know, your marriage, your kids, your job, anything like that, and you'll run. You will just instinctively run from God to protect that thing. I mean, I know. I've got my own fears and anxieties when it comes to rejection, when it comes to failure, when it comes to conflict and dealing with difficult situations. And the enemy knows that all he needs to do is like, boo, you know, in those areas. And I'm going to run away. And even God might be calling me to deal with something that's difficult. I'm going to instinctively run the other direction because I'm so afraid. And he has to remind me again and again, cast all your anxieties on him. He cares for you. He loves you. Don't give a foothold to the enemy. The best verse, I think, in dealing with anxiety, personally, has been this one. Romans 8, 31 to 32. Romans 8 is the best chapter in the Bible as far as I'm concerned. But in this passage in particular, he says this, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He's saying, look, 
if you doubt that God loves you and cares for you, look to the cross. Look, he gave his son, the, the, the one that was most important to him, more important than anything else. He gave his son for you. You don't think he'll take care of the other things that are less important than his son? You don't think that he'll care for those things that you make you anxious, that you're afraid of? If he gave his son, he will take care of those things that concern you. And again, in 1 Peter 5, near the end, he said this, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. He's encouraging them that even if things don't turn around on this side of heaven, that afterwards you will be with him forever and there will be no more anxiety, no more suffering, no more pain. That even if you have to deal with loss and suffering and anxiety, this side of heaven, it won't be there forever. The last passage I want to share is this, Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And one of the main ways he does that is he looks for footholds in your life, ways in which your sin has kind of opened the door a crack. One of the, two of the main areas talked about in this passage are your pride and your anxiety. That our pride opens that door for the enemy to come in and just wreak havoc and destruction. And our anxieties, a refusal to trust that God loves us and cares for us, open that door for the enemy to come in as well. I encourage you this morning, humble yourself before the Lord. Cast all your anxiety on him. Look to the cross. Look at his love for you. And trust in him this morning. Let's take a minute in silence and just respond. And I want to encourage you to do exactly that to humble yourself before the Lord, to cast your anxieties on him, to remind yourself as you look to the cross of his love for you.